Hi, I'm Tom. Hi. Welcome to all the new folks. We're going to obviously take this weekend. Um, and uh, But before we take, uh, and they always want me to take new things, they don't want me to take the same things over and over again, which I think is unreasonable. Uh, so I... I uh, there's there's some new stuff and some stuff may, some of you may have heard before, um, but before taping, I, I just want to you know welcome you to this place uh, for an Alamon weekend. Um, I have been surrounded by people this week who need Alamon, <laughs> and I found that I had raised my voice uh, screaming at one or two of them that they need a hundred thousand Al-Anon meetings just to take the edge off, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, before I'll even want to talk to them, so it's a little sign I could use some Al-Anon too. Um, so welcome here. Uh, so that's number one. And um, number two, for, lots of you are new, and, and congratulations on ever doing anything new. Um, this is a, a place that is emotionally and spiritually safe for many, many people. And I hope you can find it to be safe for you too, um, no matter where you're coming from, um, no matter what your tradition is, or if this is the first time you've, you've been at a Jesuit retreat house or whatever. There's, this is uh, an open place and it is safe. No one tries to force you to sign anything or kiss pictures of the Pope or, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's it, 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 it's a refuge, and a lot of us on retreats we come in and our needs are are uh, pretty basic. A lot of us need some privacy. A lot of us need some conversation. A lot of us need some sleep, and a lot of us need some regular meals. If nothing else happens this weekend, but some of those things get dealt with, it's going to be a very good weekend. Okay. So just, again, welcome here. And uh, the great rule that I needed to hear shortly after I started going to meetings was take what you need and leave the rest. If there's anything that I say this weekend that's helpful, please use it. And if it's not helpful, just don't use it. Um, it's a big program, and there are lots of ways of doing this stuff. And... Uh, I do not hold myself up as a model of recovery, I assure you. Uh, nor should you. You'll get sick if you do. Um, we'll get along better if you regard me as a warning. <laughs> and you can say, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not as big a mess as he is. And you'll relax sleep a lot better. So that's what I know. Um, <sighs> One other point before I start the first talk of the evening. Um, you might not sleep real well tonight because it's a new room and a new bed and things are weird. And uh, Don't panic. Um, I, I regularly have time when I can't sleep. Uh, when I'm lying there and I can't sleep, it is usually not useful for me to say, why aren't I sleeping? It doesn't help. Um, Maybe I should start thinking everything through again. <laughs> uh, maybe it is uh, diphtheria. 
Feel it. I know the tumors are getting larger. Um, when I can't sleep, I get up and I go do something else for a while. I know this is a big place, and you're welcome to prowl. If, um, if, if nothing else, you can always come in here, turn on the light, and read. I mean, this is always an option. This room is a pretty useful place. Um, but if you can't sleep very well tonight, the good news is tomorrow you'll sleep a lot better. And you'll have nap time and you can sleep in and so forth. So don't panic over the sleep stuff. I had lots of fear about not sleeping. And every so often it comes back. But I've just gotten real practical now. Last week there was a night I just couldn't sleep. And so I didn't. <laughs> you know, it was not a crisis. It was just another night I couldn't sleep. Either I'm wearing out or I'm getting better. I don't know. I don't know. Um, also, let me see. Uh, almost ready, George. Almost ready to start taping. Perfectionists. You probably met people like them. Um, I also one other thing that I'm very grateful for. Uh, I mean, this is a. I'm glad to be with you on this weekend. This is a birthday weekend for me. Um, if I don't drink or use or take any of those white pills uh, between now and Sunday, I'll have 20 years. Which is kind of nice. uh, which means 20 years in AA. That means 17 years in Al-Anon. You know, I, I mean, I held on for as long as I could before I had to go to Al-Anon. <laughs> is Tommy here from San Francisco? Just, just watching. Okay. That woman's trouble. <laughs> Keep an eye on her. Okay. Yes, yes. I was here when you had your 40th birthday. That 40th natal. That's right. 40th natal. No 40th of sobriety. Yeah. 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 Well, here we are. Why don't we try the serenity prayer? God, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, I'm Tom, and I'm one of those people who goes to Al-Anon because he has to. Um, So you're going to hear some about that. I, I also, I've, I've done other Allen on weekends, and a couple people tonight have asked me, well, how are you doing? I mean, the, the, the really honest response to that is, I have no way of knowing. I mean, how would I know? I'm a survivor. Um, the fact that I'm functioning recently bathed at all is good news. And beyond that, it's gravy as far as I'm concerned. So I'm out of my room, leave me alone. Um, I might also be profoundly insightful and spiritual this weekend, but watch expectations. And sometimes uh, people spend a weekend with me on, on situations like this and say, well, you're a lot better this year than last. <laughs> and I'll say, well, what's the difference? And they said, you were really mean last year. <laughs> so, uh, again, you're, you're dealing with someone who needs meetings. Uh, I need more meetings than I go to. I think that's a pretty safe statement to say. Uh, but this is a weekend to focus on the use of Al-Anon principles and the Al-Anon program. And I think it's an important series of things to look at because the fact of the matter is, if your life is at all like mine, you are completely surrounded by crazy people. <laughs> crazy, demanding, intrusive people. 
and how on earth can we cope with this? Uh, it, it just becomes overwhelming, and I start reacting to all of the craziness. I am one of those people who screams at television sets. Um, one of the fellows I live with says, why don't you change the channel? That never occurred to me. It never occurred to me. And we've got cable, you know, so there's a whole bunch of people I could be screaming at. Instead, I argue with politicians and religious leaders. And clearly there is part of me that enjoys arguing with politicians and religious leaders on television. So uh, then I know I need another meeting. Um, I do know there are some people who are normal, and I guess there are normal families. You wouldn't know it from me, but th there may be. I was talking to one of my, my uh, Jesuit pals who goes to meetings, and here is his keen insight. And I think this is a good one to start off an Al-Anon weekend with. He says, not everyone who would like to be crazy can be. You have to start young, like ballet dancers. I just identify completely. I'll repeat it because it's so insightful. And we probably need to print this on cards and pass it out to newcomers at meetings, you know, who are wondering why they're there. Um, not everyone who would like to be crazy can be. You have to start young, like ballet dancers. And this is why as many of us begin our recovery and go into our recovery from the family craziness, we have to do some archaeology and look at some of those young years. That can be very, very unpleasant for everybody. Uh, when I started doing a little about archaeology, I spent some time blaming and not speaking. Blaming others, not speaking to others. And um, I had to do that for a while, I guess. And then I found out that um, the program is about my getting well. And I have to take responsibility for my own behavior. And blaming doesn't help. It does feel good, and it does focus me nicely, but it doesn't help. <laughs> and if I, well, I have to let go of my need to blame, and I've got to let go of some of my major resentments. And if I don't do that, I don't grow up very much. One of the ways um, that you can spot the difference between grown-ups and adolescents is adolescents never take responsibility for their behavior, no matter how old they are. Grown-ups will admit, yeah, I, I participated. I participated, at least on some level. I was having a conversation the other day, and I... I, I don't, do you ever find yourself wondering how you even get into certain conversations? And I was talking to this person, and we were missing completely. There was all kinds of convolution. And the, this person had a lot of resentments and a lot of anger about, about lots of things. Well, who doesn't? And uh, I found myself making some distinctions. And I don't know if these are useful distinctions, but I find them interesting distinctions. And I'd just like to mention them now, because if I don't mention them now, I might forget for the rest of the weekend. And this is dealing with crazy people. Um, I'm told by someone who is a professional therapist, what do they know? <laughs> that when normal people, whoever they are, meet people for the first time in a social situation or a school situation or a working situation, one of the first questions the normal person asks is, is this other person crazy? I mean, like they look for it. Not to date, not to move in, not to fix. But just to say, 
is the person I'm dealing with here playing with the full deck or not? Because I need to know so that I can respond appropriately. Um, some of us never ask that question. We just find that we're very drawn <laughs> to this new person. What an interesting person. Here, can I give you money? You know, here. I'd like to pay your rent. I don't know why. I just am overwhelmed with the need to pay your rent. I had those feelings just this summer. I'm driving around and the need to pay people's rent suddenly became tangible to me. Um, I know I needed meetings. Um, I just start moving in. So we're surrounded by crazy people. What, what distinctions can be made? Well, here's a couple of distinctions, because crazy doesn't really give me enough information. Some people are just zany. They're fun. You know, harmless, entertaining, amusing, fun, zany. That's fine. I like that. I mean, I would throw myself there frequently. Some people are dangerous. Now, again, some of us are attracted to that. I always perk up myself <laughs> when I'm around dangerous people. Um, it, it's that sense of adrenaline that helps me focus. And um, I, I just, now I realize it's, it's not a good thing. But some people are dangerous. They don't know the rules. They have power and they don't know the boundaries. They're kind of like loose cannons, you know? Um, they can cause great damage. They might not mean to do any of it, but they're dangerous. Some people are stupid. I mean, they just don't pay attention. Now, I'm regularly there. I just don't pay attention. I don't absorb, and I do stupid things. How did that happen? Well, when you put A and B together, it always happens. Really? How long has this been going on forever? I'm just pointing this out. I'm shocked. You see? It's stupid. It, it, like, some people don't learn. There are times I don't learn. Other times I can. And then there are some people who are evil. I, mean, I do believe this, and you can disagree with me on this all you want. By the way, to be evil, you have to be real bright. I think that's an important distinction to my way of thinking. Some people are dangerous, but they're stupid. They're not evil, but they'll kill you. But they're not evil. Evil means you have to be real bright and know what you're doing. Then you're evil. See, some people are evil. Um, and I, um, I, I think many people are too stupid to go to hell. I mean, they're just too stupid. I think most people just miss it by default. Um, <laughs> I really do. I don't think it's, oh, I didn't understand the rules. I'm burning. Uh, I, I think, to me, to my way of thinking, you very clearly have to know what you're about and what it's about and choose it, and then we're dealing with something serious. Scott Peck, in, in one of his books, writes about evil, and, and I thought it's a fascinating topic. I mean, I, I read serial killer books to get to sleep at night. Um, I love true detective weirdness, you know, and major dismemberment of bodies and Agatha Christie. I just perk right up with that stuff. So, again, realize who's talking to you this evening. Um, um, but in, with Scott Peck, the book is called People of the Lie, and he was trying to look at this, this question or problem of evil. And, and one of his, he and I would disagree on all kinds of things, but he, he's trying to talk about it. And he said that um, some people, uh, physically he would respond non, in a nauseated way with some people, and that's how he figured evil was about, oh, well, I don't know how that comes up. Whole other topic, that's not a topic for a meeting. 
I'd like to talk about evil this evening at the meeting. Everyone will go crazy. Don't do that. Don't try this at home. I'm just doing it because I was thinking about it on the way down here this afternoon, so it's the first thing on my brain. Now, let's get on to an Al-Anon topic. However, I think to be evil, you have to be right. Last year, um, Al-Anon came out with some new material, some new texts. And I think they are invaluable, and I'd like to use those this weekend. A lot of this material comes from a book called How Al-Anon Works for Families and Friends of Alcoholics. Um, and it sure talks about how lots of us get here. And it's, I really do believe that Al-Anon craziness or pre-Al-Anon craziness is much more subtle than alcoholic craziness. Um, it takes us a while before we realize how crazy we are. I mean, we're not the ones that did the drinking, although in my case I surely did. But it's, it's a lot of us who are Al-Anon members, not double winners. You know, I'm not the one with the problem. Why should I have to go to the meetings? And we don't get a glimmer into our own insanity. It's subtle. It's sophisticated. It's real sophisticated. On page six of the text, it reads... If we have no idea whether or not anyone around us has had a drinking problem, we can see the effects of alcoholism in our own lives if we know what to look for. Part of our own recovery is getting information. Part of dealing with any disease is getting some information. Blanche out of Texas says there's a slogan about what you don't know can't hurt you. And she said in terms of alcoholism, what you don't know kills kills all the time so we need if we know what to look for we who have been affected by someone else's drinking find ourselves inexplicably haunted I like the image there's a haunting feeling you know inexplicably haunted by insecurity fear guilt obsession with others or an overwhelming need to control every person and situation we encounter. Now again, probably no one here has ever had a control problem. <laughs> but I was emailing somebody today with a control problem. I can spot this so clearly in others, it's my gift. Um, and, and she's going on a ship in a while, and she's very nervous about going on the ship. And why is she so nervous about the ship? And I emailed her back, because you're not driving. <laughs> And I said, you have to realize that, see, and I identify, even though I don't know a thing about doing a ship, I'd be happier if I were driving, <laughs> rather than the captain who's had years of training, but what does he know? You see? <laughs> An overwhelming need to control every person and situation we encounter. And though our loved ones appear to be the ones with the problems, we secretly blame ourselves feeling that somehow we are the trouble. We are the trouble. See, what's the problem? I'm the problem. Or that we should have been able to overcome the problem with love, prayer, hard work, intelligence, or perseverance. Before I started a lot of Al-Anon, I really did believe that everything would get better if I just tried harder. <laughs> I'm dying, you know, but if I tried Harder, I'd be dead, but at least it, they'd be fixed. 
you know. And so many of us come to Al-Anon with huge amounts of exhaustion and a little bit of rage. A little bit of rage. Anger is a topic. Now, anger is an appropriate topic in Al-Anon. Also, just a flashback on the evil thing. Most of the people we're dealing with are crazy. They don't make choices. They can be dangerous and they can be stupid. But they're not evil. You know, the disease makes lots of decisions for people. I need to remember that a lot. Daddy's not a bad guy. Daddy's a sick guy. Well, they look a lot alike to me. That's why we need certain information. You know, basic information. Um, or we get pretty crazy. We know something is very wrong, but we can't figure out what it is. Or we think we've identified the problem, but can never seem to solve it. I have dreams like this all the time. We may suspect that drinking has something to do with our situation, but we really don't want to think about it. After all, alcohol can be embarrassing. And many of us would rather die than be embarrassed. I put myself in that camp regularly. Um, I can't ask, they'll know I don't know. You know? Well, that's right, but you don't know, Tom. Oh. Well, then maybe I can ask. <laughs> Aren't I supposed to know everything immediately? Um, some of us can identify the problem very, very easily. Others of us can't. We just know something's amiss. On page 7, they write up one of my favorite lists here. Even those of us who can identify the problem as active alcoholism probably have no idea what to do about it. We only know that we've tried lots of things that didn't work and we're tired and we're angry. <laughs> Two of my favorites. We may have poured out liquor. I've done that. Hidden it. I've done that. Hidden money that might pay for it. I've done that. Even taken a few drinks ourselves in order to leave less for the alcoholic. <laughs> That's very sophisticated thinking. <laughs> Anybody who thinks like that, a hundred thousand Al-Anon meetings just to take the edge off. I mean, you are so crazy. You have to be here for a long time. Just relax. We're glad to see you. Um, let me see. Or we've taken a couple of drinks to feel more a part of their lives. A lot of us do that. In fact, many people in Al-Anon will be real alcohol abusers for a while. They're not alcoholic, but they're trying to go along for the ride, you know. I mean, they can die just as much as others, but when he gets over, they stop drinking. And they find there's other craziness going on here. Happens a lot. Most of us have, my favorite verbs, argued, pleaded, bargained, threatened, walked out, come back, given ultimatums, failed to carry them out, or carried them out and felt guilty. We've tried to reason with the drinkers. Don't do that. It, it just makes everyone unhappy. Uh, can I explain? There is an article written a year ago, March, March 1995, in the New Yorker, and it's on the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's a very fine article. 
and it has a few criticisms to make. It says, here are some problems we see in contemporary AA. It talks about addiction and the craziness of addiction, and they talk to a shrink in Boston, of all places, who really knows things. And he understands about addiction a lot. And he talks about it in terms of science, brainstem stuff, you know, higher brain, lower brain, lowest brain. Um, high parts of the brain deals with, like, state capitals, vice presidents of the United States, you know, decisions, do I want lasagna, what, you know, new restaurant, we think. Then the, the deeper we go, uh, breathing, you know, I mean, breathing happens and heartbeat and the brain. And But right about down here at the brain stem, is, is the part of our brain that most resembles the reptile, the lizard, the snake. That's where addiction is. I mean, it's very primitive. Snakes and lizards want sunlight and flies. That's all they want. And now if they have enough sunlight and flies, they're fine. If addiction is active... All of the brain, the charm, the sweetness, the threatening, the bullying, the college education, the vast amount of information about your defective character, all of that stuff is being controlled by the lizard. <laughs> if you ever try to talk to someone who is in active addiction, you are talking to the lizard. And all the lizard wants is sunlight and flies. Um, you can spot them in groups. Uh, you know, they're not listening to you. They're busy looking for flies. <laughs> um, they're in active addiction. I remember my, my sponsor, uh, who, by the way, has deteriorated significantly since the last time we talked, he just turned 25 years sober and uh, also goes to Al-Anon for any number of reasons. I'm sure I'm one of them. And uh, he's almost 60 years old, Anamon Senior, and just after Easter, he jumped out of a plane at 13,000 feet with a parachute. Yeah. So um, several men he sponsors, we talked uh, among ourselves a lot about him. And he, uh, it's wonderful to gossip about him and say, do you think he's gotten any worse? I don't know. And none of us know whether jumping out of a plane at 13,000 feet with a parachute at 25 years sober, almost 60 years old at a Monsignor, is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> you know? Does this mean that he has a deeper understanding of letting go in step three? <laughs> or does this mean it's time to go back to the hospital? <laughs> and he's been there before, you know. We don't know. Um, so, uh, talking to someone in active addiction. Terry was explaining this. He said, you know, when he was out there, when the lizard was making the decisions, and he, you invited him for dinner, rings the doorbell, and it's hard to be honest when the lizard's making decisions, but you'd come to the front door and say something like this. Hi, uh, listen, I'm really glad to be here tonight. Uh... I'm willing to eat the food you have been working on all day. I'm willing to have a conversation with you and your family and put up with your kids and be nice to the cat, but I'm here to drink. Okay? Now, as long as the supply doesn't get cut off, we'll get along fine. See, 
is getting sunlight and flies. There's no crises. Cut off the sunlight and flies, and they become lunatics. So if someone's been drinking, it is not useful to talk to them, because the rational part of the brain is not in operation. The lizard is calling the shots. And I know myself, I have other addictions besides alcoholism. And when I become compulsively busy, what are you doing in my way? Don't you know I have to do things? And we might be having a rational conversation, you think, but I'm gone. You know, the lizard's taken over. And you can occasionally see the little tongue flick in and out, you know. <laughs> Beware the lizard. <laughs> so when I'm talking to lizard brain, um, I make cooing sounds. I just want them to pass out um, or go away, and uh, I'll go do something else. But I'm not going to dance with the lizard you know, today. Or pretend the lizard isn't there. You know, that's what makes everyone crazy. We've tried to reason with drinkers. We've scheduled their free time. This is always fun, you know. For those of you who've always wanted to be teachers, um, this is how you do it. Schedule their free time. We've monitored their behavior. We've complained. We've prayed. We've tried to avoid doing anything that might cause the alcoholic to drink. We've searched for opportunities to make the drinker see how destructive their drinking can be. Again, you're talking to the lizard. They don't care. They just need flies. They'll be fine. And you're talking about being responsible. And then the last sentence in this paragraph, mostly we've hurt and we've worried. If you're someone with a lot of hurt and if you're someone with a lot of worry, we're glad to see you. I mean, we really are. Um, but I'm not living with someone with active addiction. Well, we're surrounded by crazy people. And I don't need someone in active addiction to make me crazy. I mean, I can start the day crazy, having only myself to talk to. Um, um, next paragraph. Those of us who are no longer around active alcoholism can be even more stymied. Obviously, we don't have the option of trying to change the alcoholic, so we've changed our circumstances, our jobs, our clothes, our friendships, our locations, our religions, practically everything about ourselves, but nothing seems to have a lasting impact on our suffering. We, too, turn to Al-Anon in hope of finding some kind of relief. We come to Al-Anon for many different reasons, but we stay for only one. We want our lives to get better. I want to talk for a few moments about the notion of spiritual awakening, and then I want to talk a little bit about step two and a little bit about God as we understand God, and which is different. I mean, I hope you... Uh, God's very big. I really do believe that. Um, God is bigger than we think, <laughs> literally. Um, many of us are pretty resourceful people. And if we could have fixed ourselves, we would have. If we could have figured it out or just tried harder to get fixed, we would have. 
Step one is a hard place for many of us to be. Step one, that admitting we're powerless and that our lives are unmanageable, means failure has happened. We have failed. The alcoholic only wants to control and enjoy the drinking. We only want to control and enjoy the alcoholic. And we failed. Now, that alcoholic can be our spouse. That alcoholic can be a parent. That alcoholic can be a child. Those are three very different kinds of craziness. And it makes no difference which one is yours. They'll all kill you. Talking to parents about kids has a special kind of desperation. We talk about waking up. This is a grand metaphor. It's a grand image. A lot of us, in trying to run the world, <clears throat> are very, very busy people, and we're aware of everything but life. You know? We start waking up, and we can notice some things, but one of the... When I first started hearing people talk about waking up, what I heard was this. I'm waking up and I'm so grateful. I'm coming to and I'm so glad. Oh, it's such a good thing to be here. I'm so glad I'm no longer asleep and drowsy. Well, sometimes we don't wake up comfortable. And I just want to address a few words to those of us who might not be real comfortable tonight. Sometimes when we wake up to notice things, what we notice is that we're empty. Or we notice we're afraid. Or we notice that everything is wrong. Or we notice that once more we're standing with a broken heart and empty hands. And that's an awakening and it's an awful awakening. It's a taste of our own limitations and our own powerlessness, and our own spiritual and emotional poverty. And it's real uncomfortable. Especially if you're a good citizen who's been trying real hard. And you come to and discover that there's nothing there. Um, I don't notice my falling asleep. I don't notice that. But I notice my waking up. So clearly I've fallen asleep. <laughs> And I, I'm waking up a lot. And every so often, I wake up to great discomfort. And I just realize everything's a mess. Waking up. So, if I wake up and discover I'm at step one again, or still, what do I do? Well, march to step two, right? I don't think I marched to step two. I think I got carried to step two. By a power greater than myself and the love in the rooms. That's how I moved from step one, which was an unmitigated nightmare and no way out, to step two, where everything was still awful. I mean, trust me. But I felt a little hope. I mean, I just felt a little bit of hope. Maybe I won't drown this fast. <laughs> um, that's a relief. 
some days. Maybe I have just enough to live. That little bit of hope. So, if you find yourself in a very wounded place, you might let yourself be carried to a place where you can do some healing. We get carried from step one to step two, and then we kind of come to again. And we believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity and some kind of life, which we'll talk about a lot tomorrow. Um, there's a, a parable. Jesus tells a lot of stories, and I frequently don't quote Jesus because it makes people so nuts. But um, there's, there's some very nice stuff. Jesus tries to, to teach about God in all kinds of ways. He's a good rabbi. So if you have problems with, with the Christian Jesus, listen to him as a rabbi. You know, he always helps me. Um, here's what he says, and I think it's a little thing about God, an understanding of God to people who are trying to figure God out. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Capitola, Aptos, Santa Cruz, you know, one of those places. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood along the shore. He spoke to them at length in parables, their little stories that hopefully have a point, although sometimes I don't get it, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and it withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, but some seed fell on rich soil <coughs> and produced fruit a hundred or sixty or thirty-fold. Whoever has hears ought to hear. Little story. Well, when I first heard this as a kid, my question was, am I the rocky soil? Or am I the good soil? Or am I the place where there are thorns? Well, it depends on the day. Sometimes I'm one and sometimes I'm the other. And, and the thing is, that's all of us. All of us are all of those things. But I don't think that's the major point of the parable. What occurs to me is this is a little parable about God. And the thing, the, the, the insight Jesus has into God is God sows seed everywhere. God is not a very good farmer, by the way. Good farmers do not waste seed. God sows seed even in the rockiest soil, like some of the people we sponsor. And it's not because they're deserving, but because of who God is. God sows seed all the time. And I need to know that there is always more. This is a generous farmer. Maybe even stupid. But seed happens all the time. And it's very important to remember when we get to those parts of our program where we're real discouraged and we're convinced that no more seed is coming our way because we're rocky soil. Even rocky soil gets seed. So, step two. You have believe that the power greater than yourself, than ourselves, is able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
One of the reasons I am usually hopeful, probably 80% of the time, 60% of the time, uh, 60% is good, um, is I, I just believe that God has skills. God is real big. And God has skills. Far more than me. Well, what about, you know, all this other stuff about God? Um, I heard this wonderful story last week. We had a big Jesuit gathering down in Los Angeles. We gather together in the western province every four or five years and talk about everything we can think of. And one of the fellows who had spent some time in Guatemala uh, during the war, lots of very broken families, lots of real disaster, lots of great grief. And he was down there and he was listening to various people and talking to various people. And he met this mom in one of the villages that had just been pretty much leveled, you know, with our tax dollars. Um, and, and he's talking with this lady and he says, uh, so uh, what's your life like? And she says, oh, it's okay. And he finds out she has 11 children. 11 children? Um, and they talk a little more and, and he says, well, do you have a favorite? And she looks a little funny at him and she says, yeah, I have a favorite. And he said, well, who is it? Is it the oldest girl or the youngest boy? Or which, which of your 11 children is your favorite? And this woman just has to sit down for a second, and she looks at him very centered, from a very centered place, we would say, in California. And she said, um, I love all of my children with the steady love of a mother. But the one I love most is El que sufre más the one who suffers the most. Sometimes it's this child and sometimes it's that child, but the one who has my special love is the one who suffers most. I think that is a keen insight into God as I understand God. I mean, I think God loves everybody. Like, as I've mentioned before, I don't think God has a lot of taste. Um... There surely are people I wouldn't even talk to, and, you know, God seems to sustain them. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Um, you see why I go to Al-Anon. Um, but in my religious tradition, spiritual understanding, God has a special relationship with those who suffer most, with the poor and the broken and the alienated and the far away. And this goes all the way back to Exodus when God starts a relationship with the slaves in Egypt, not because they're fabulous, but because they're slaves. And I have to remember this for those times when I'm feeling pretty broken. It doesn't mean I'm cut off. And as I deal with people who are pretty broken, it doesn't mean they're cut off. They're specially loved. Tonight... Um, Most of us need sleep and time to unwind and time to unpack. Two good retreat practices I'd like to suggest to you. One is that whenever you make a retreat, do a little bit of serious reading. A little bit of serious reading. This might be program literature. In fact, for most of us it is. A lot of us 
I haven't looked at it in a while, you know. Little serious reading. Which means the radio's not on and we're not having a conversation with someone else. We go to a place where we can be private and we can do some reading. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. The other thing is some writing. To write down. Um, if something moves you, if plus or minus, write about it. Oh, I got so angry when he said, write about that one. That's far more important than, oh, I felt so good when he said, you know. Write about hopes, write about dreams. If you're in crises or if stuff is going on, you just might want to form an outline on it. This is what's going on. Date it. And then bring that with you to your next retreat. And part of your serious reading on your next retreat is to reread what you wrote on your last retreat. This is how some of us learn to pay attention to ourselves. Because I never know what's going on, you know. I mean, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. But it's interesting if I look at my retreats note, retreat notes and notice that last year I was in a very different place. We change all the time. The program gives us tools. The program gives us companionship. It helps us get some information into our heads. And it helps us open up our hearts and our gut so we can be real people. Step two, restored to sanity. This happens little bit by little bit by little bit. Um, I think that's all I know. Um, so I think it'd be a good idea to break. And then um, if you need a meeting in 15 minutes, Anyone who's in here can start a meeting. If you need to sleep, go sleep. If you need to take a walk, go take a walk. Um, if you want to call home and check on them, <laughs> you might want to write about that. Uh, they're relieved you're gone, trust me. Um, and, uh, you know, they're going to be just as crazy when you go back on Sunday as they are tonight. So just relax. And take care of yourself. The Al-Anon the Al program is summarized very nicely. If you fly, if you're on a plane, and as they take off, the steward or stewardess always gives you the whole Al-Anon program with every flight. In case of a sudden decrease in cabin pressure. Oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling. They will not inflate, but there really is oxygen there. You have to believe that. Put your own on first. <laughs> then you can help others. If you don't put your own on first, you will pass out and help no one. Little suggestion. So uh, if there is a meeting, you know, as you go back to your uh, little Al-Anon groups, the topic might be putting your own oxygen mask on first. I think it's a important concept for a lot of us. Let's break. Time, let's start with the serenity prayer and then dance through the rest of the day. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference 
Um, last night, I told a story of the mother in Guatemala with 11 kids, and her understanding is she loves the child who hurts the most, El que sufre más, which, or El que sufre más, which I think is, is, uh, breathtaking. Um, I told that story last week before a group of Catholic men, and here, and at the end of the retreat, one of the older fellows there, a grandfather clearly, came up and he said, that story about the mother in Guatemala just knocked me off my feet. He said, I suddenly realized my, why my wife and I have fought over our kids all these years. Because she was always reaching out for the one who suffered most, I was always most impressed by the one who accomplished most. Men and women sometimes approach things differently. <laughs> uh, there are books on this subject, and I recommend all of them. <laughs> there really are differences in perception, and and I don't I don't know if it's in the DNA or if it's or if it's in the way we're social, socialized, but it's it's real true. Uh, even in the recovery process, um, we many of us have a different rhythm. Like I notice. A lot of men get into recovery, uh, especially they get sober, the alcoholic males, but also in Al-Anon, a lot of men start their recovery, and the first feelings they start getting in touch with, once they get in touch with any, you know, is rage. They're just angry a lot. And I was angry for years and years and years, but never noticed. I just thought I was funny and insightful, but I, I was really very, very angry. And it took me a while to realize how anger, ma how anger masks itself, in all, like depression, it masks itself in all kinds of ways. If you negotiate the anger, and by that I mean you learn to accept it, you learn to work with it, you learn to talk about it, you learn to let go of it, you learn to put it in places where people don't get hurt, you know, if you learn to negotiate your anger uh, as a male, you get to a point in your recovery where you begin to experience large amounts of sadness and grief. Now, this is a huge surprise to most men. It surely was a surprise to me. I thought that mostly I was angry. I find that under the anger is an awful lot of sadness and grief. Big surprise. Uh, that started emerging when I was about six, seven, eight years sober and about five years in Alamont. Um, a lot of women begin recovery, and once the feelings are connected with, they feel huge amounts of grief and sadness. Huge amounts of grief and sadness. Uh, you can hear women at meetings say, for the first two years I cried, you know. Uh, that's right, that's right. Now, if you negotiate the sadness, be able to talk about it, write about it, let it go, verbalize it some, I mean, put it in places. If you can negotiate the sadness, you will come in your recovery, at least many women do, to a place where they suddenly realize how angry they are. And this throws them completely by surprise, because they didn't know that. Um, and it also really freaks out the men in their lives. <laughs> who say things like, I liked you better when you cried all day. Um, and here you are, you know, like nine years in Alamon, and you're taking karate. And, uh, you know, you are, you've joined the NRA, and, you know, you're getting very interested in your rights to carry guns. Um, 
those those are just rhythms that many of us find. And again, there are people that are surely exceptions to it. But I found once I could begin making some contact with the grief stuff, um, my world became a much larger world. Much larger world. Um, let me start off this morning again reading a little bit from this How Al-Anon Works for Families and Friends of Alcoholics. And in chapter 4, it talks about those of us who find ourselves here at meetings. Um, life is all about change. I'll repeat that. Life is all about change. Anything that's alive will change in some form or other. And Al-Anon has gone through huge amounts of change over the last 20 years. Um, when Al-Anon got started, it was overwhelmingly women who put up with really awful husbands. Drunk or sober, pretty awful husbands. Work starts getting done with the families, you know, and adult children of alcoholics groups and family systems and Claudia Black's work and Sharon Weckscheider Cruz's work. These are real crucial people to our recovery. And the conversation gets bigger and we find out all kinds of people can join the Al-Anon family groups. In the literature we always say, well, anyone can join if they have a relative or friend who is an alcoholic. But we didn't practice that. You know, basically it was for wives. Over the last 20 years, the face has changed. You now start having people coming in whose parents had the illness. Or people coming in whose children have the illness. Or people coming in whose siblings have the illness. And these are different tones of voice. It's represented in this chapter 4 called Understanding Ourselves and alcoholism, and they just quote from the many voices. By the way, this difference also, I think, is very clearly seen in the first Al-Anon meditation book, Odat, One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, it had a pretty consistent voice, uh, and the voice was of a, a woman whose husband was, was an alcoholic, and, and that was the basic voice, and it was a very good voice that sure helped me get through lots of stuff. The new courage to change one day at a time in Al-Anon 2 has lots of different voices. Lots of different voices. All talking about recovery and how it works. And again, the face of Al-Anon is a much broader face than it was 20 years ago. I've met someone who hates that. <laughs> I've met some Al-Anon member who just hates the fact that alcoholics are coming to Al-Anon now. Uh, she says it ruined the meetings for her. <laughs> and part of it, and again, I'm not a shrink, but my, my suspicion is she doesn't feel safe with them. She doesn't feel safe with them. And it's, it's uh, you know, she is as, as um, anxious about that as, as um, other people are anxious about other things. So that needs to be respected a little bit. But, but I go anyway. <laughs> In fact, I sit next to her when I go. <laughs> Which is just a hint of my perversion, uh, so you know, when I read serial killer books and watch bad movies, bad whiny cranky films. Um, chapter 4, alcoholism is a confusing disease. It's embarrassing and it's confusing. And much about it seems to defy logic. 
Again, if you are a logical person, this will throw you all the time. Remember, you're dealing with the reptile, okay, which has its own logic. But it's, it's, and they can have, these reptiles can have PhDs. When they're in active addiction, it's the reptile. As a result, most of us come to Al-Anon with a great many unanswered questions. For example, I swore I'd never, ever associate with anyone like my alcoholic parents. Now I find myself surrounded by, employed by, even married to people just like them. How could this happen? You know, good question, good question. Um, he's finally sober in AA and everything is going well for him. Why am I still so miserable? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Please sit down. Doctors at the treatment center insist that my child is an alcoholic, but I don't believe them. She's only 12, and I've never seen her falling down drunk the way alcoholics get. Couldn't the doctors be mistaken? Yeah. I, as some of you might know in my own story, the only time I've ever had a drunk driving accident is when I was 12 or 13, and it was on my bike. And I was drunk, and I went into a telephone pole. Um, knocked myself out, hospital, hospitalized for it. Um, no one said, um, let's test the blood alcohol level of this 13-year-old boy. If they had, I could have gone into treatment then. Uh, this would have been in the late Eisenhower administration. <laughs> Instead, I had to hold on until Mr. Ford <laughs> came along. Um, I love this one. Just when we finally seem to be getting ahead, there's always some sort of setback or crisis. The person I live with never seems to get very upset. She just pours herself a drink. I'm the one who gets hysterical. Why am I always the one who cares so much? Why do I always have to solve all the problems? <laughs> That's wonderful. I just like that one so much. And I've thought that one so much. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one around here who does any work. <laughs> of course people in my family drank, but I wouldn't call them alcoholics. Besides, what does that have to do with me? Good question. Um, the denial, the level of denial is heroic, you know, with many of us. Um, and uh, uh, my mom's current understanding of my alcoholism is that the reason I'm alcoholic is that I'm a priest. She's never told this to me, of course, because it would make me anxious. Um, but she mentions it to other members of the family. And my niece, who is sober a couple years now, says, well, how about those of us who aren't priests and who are alcoholic in the family? Does this isn't. And she just doesn't know who they're talking about. <laughs> We're letting her be. We're not. We used to yell at her. It didn't work. My problem is my problem is picking the wrong people to fall in love with. I can't seem to have an intimate relationship that doesn't blow up in my face. Do you think there's a connection? I don't really mind the drinking. What I mind are the bills piling up, the insults, the violence, the troubles with the law, sexual problems, and all the rest. How can I stop all this from happening? And of course the answer is, try 
harder. <laughs> this is why so many of us come to Alan. I'm so exhausted. I heard one one um, person share at an Alan meeting about the world was so crazy and and she was so responsible uh, and she was the only responsible one in the family and she was the one who knew where things were, you know, and had skills. Um, and she saw herself as being eternally strong, eternally exhausted. So I printed that up. I like that a lot. I just have that right there on my desk. So I look up. And when I'm feeling eternally strong, I need to know that that is closely followed by eternally exhausted. When you're on call 24 hours a day to the craziest people in town seven days a week, you're going to get cranky. <laughs> you're going to get cranky. And you may even get dangerous for um, the neighbors. Why do the problems of alcoholic relatives who have been dead for years continue to affect my life? Good question. You can ask your therapist that and work for 8 to 12 years. I think I'm losing my mind. I seem to be remembering terrible things about my past, but my family denies that any of these things ever happened. <laughs> then I can't shake the feeling that what I'm remembering is the truth. Who do I believe? Who do you believe? I've had a couple of people come to see me and they've wanted to talk and they made it very clear at the beginning. They just want to be able to talk to somebody who's not going to argue with them. And they're recounting past stuff and they just want someone to listen. Instead of saying, oh, that never happened. Oh, you're wrong. Oh, he didn't do that. She couldn't have said that. To the best of my knowledge, no one in my family ever drank, but in every other respect, they behaved exactly like alcoholics. How could that be? Well, maybe their parents drank. There could be adult children who had no treatment, you know, no recovery themselves. They're real interesting. Um, I found an awful lot of, uh, in my own church, um, uh, numbers of young people from alcoholic Irish Catholic families and Polish Catholic families went into ministry as sisters or priests and they um, did not drink themselves but they were dry and they were sharp and they were a little moody um, and did not help anybody or anything that was one of the things that's helped me understand some of the people I found in my own denomination who are very problematic, um, they were untreated, you know, an untreated Al-Anon, someone who needed Al-Anon desperately and never went. No wonder you remember them being in a constant rage. You know, they had no treatment. That allows me to bring a little compassion to the scene. <clears throat> she promises she'll never drink again and two days later she's on another bender. What can I do to get her to stop drinking once and for all? Good question. <laughs> nothing is the answer. And the answer is nothing. You can't do anything. Stop this. Stop thinking you're in charge. Because you'll die. You'll die. I never knew the alcoholic until he had been sober for many years. Yet I find myself obsessed with his behavior, affected by his every mood, and increasingly unable to act on my own behalf.
Could this have anything to do with alcoholism? Yes, and you are a crazy person. <laughs> um, and you don't get to deal with the drinking alcoholic to make you crazy. It's the sober one who's making you crazy. There's a vibration that you're doing that's just wonderful. Uh, as one of the um, Circuit Alamon speakers says, uh, the horns in the head of the alcoholic match the holes in the head of the Alamon. <laughs> And this has nothing to do with whether they're drinking or not. I mean, Lois Wilson, poor lady, um, founded Al-Anon, was involved in founding Al-Anon to deal with Bill Wilson 15 years sober. You know? I mean, when, when some alcoholics drink, it's easier to live with them because they pass out every so often. <laughs> and you get the evening off, you know, you can go bowling or whatever. <laughs> when they're sober. They don't pass out. This can be very stressful. How can I cope with the pain of watching her drink? I loved her so much, but I'm beginning to hate her. I can't seem to stop myself. Um, there are lots of men who need Al-Anon very, very badly, and it's very hard, it seems, for a lot of men to go to Al-Anon. I think it's a cultural thing, but boy, we we sure do. I thought that sobriety would bring us closer together, but it has actually driven us farther apart. Now the alcoholic insists that I need help as well. I don't understand it. I'm not the one with the problem. Why should I go to any meetings? Right. I was miserable for so long because all I felt was pain, but that was normal. What do I do now that I don't feel anything at all? These are exquisite Al-Anon questions. Um, I, I identify with almost everything on these pages. Um, and, you know, there is plenty of material in our own lives to be subject matter at an Al-Anon meeting. The subject matter at an Al-Anon meeting is my craziness. When the topic is the alcoholic's behavior, it's no longer a meeting in the solution. I'll repeat that. When the topic is, what has my alcoholic done this week to make my life miserable, we're not dealing with an Al-Anon meeting in the solution. Part of our process of getting well is getting some appreciation for the depth of our own craziness and our own misery. Alcoholics, of course, are convinced that they are the subjects of all Al-Anon meetings. That's because they're self-obsessed. And they think they're interesting. <laughs> oh, I'm real interesting after 12 years. Let me repeat everything I know six more times. More I'm interesting. Um, I've got to talk about my own stuff at an Al-Anon meeting or I don't get well. So it makes no difference what the alcoholic's doing. It makes no difference what the alcoholic, whether the alcoholic is sober or not in many, many ways. It's my craziness I've got to deal with. That has to be the focus. The literature says we take our eyes off them and put it on some place we can do some good, namely ourselves, you know. And even with ourselves, <clears throat> it's up and down. I, well, uh, let me see if I can get the quote right. This is a Gandhi quote from old Mahatma Gandhi, who's one of my favorites. 
Um, I like him a lot. There are several people in this century I find inspirational. Um, I like Gandhi. I like Churchill. And I also like the fact they couldn't stand each other. I like things like that. You know, I, they had so much to say but not to each other. Um, uh, what uh, Churchill called Gandhi, that bandy-legged little fakir. Um, F-A-K-I-R. Fakir, it's uh, not a happy word in British. Um, but Gandhi says, I have only three enemies. My favorite enemy, and the one who is most easy to influence, is the British Empire. <laughs> My second enemy, who is far more difficult to influence, is the Indian people. And my third enemy, and I don't seem to be able to do anything at all about this one, is a fellow named Mohandas Gandhi. The closer we get to ourselves, the harder it is to change anything. Gandhi could bring the British Empire to its knees. But as far as changing his own behavior and dealing with his own stuff, it was virtually impossible. Again, this is why most self-help programs aren't effective. If we could have changed ourselves, we would have. We really need a deep connection or any connection with the power greater than ourselves. Then change can start happening in our lives. But a lot of it depends on the key of self-acceptance. Self-acceptance really is the key. <clears throat> My sponsor, who whines and nags me a lot um, about things that I think he should just not talk about, 